God, thank you for the, the words that we've been able to sing. God, I pray that you would bring new wine out of us. Father, I pray that this morning, through the teaching of your word, God, it will penetrate our hearts, God, and ignite a passion for us to, to leave here and to take that example and witness into the streets and across Spartanburg. So thank you. Thank you so much for loving us. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> thank you, Chris. I made a statement last week that I sort of want to build on as we look at uh, this week's continued message uh, in the book of Malachi. It is the nature of people to follow a leader on whatever path he's walking, and therefore if the leader is departing from God, the people will drift from God as well. And that statement really sets the tone for the book of Malachi because the book begins in chapter 1 with God declaring to both leaders and people, I love you, they want to prove it. He said, well, I proved it because I chose you. I just arranged circumstances and people. I got you here in this church. I sent people to invite you. I've chosen you. I love you. Well, neither the priest believed it nor the people believed it. And the priests were the first ones to depart in two different ways. They departed from God. And we're gonna, we looked at one way they departed last week. They began bringing very, very sorry gifts to God in church. Uh, their hearts were not in it at all. We'll look at another way they departed uh, today. And because they departed in their leadership roles, the people then will finish the book of Malachi, hopefully next week. They departed three ways because their leaders had departed from God. So let's just sort of get into the second way in which the leaders had departed um, from their devotion to God. Malachi 2, verse 1, And now you priests... This warning is for you. If you do not listen, if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will curse your blessings. Well, it was the function of the role of the priest of Israel that they had the great privilege of pronouncing blessings on all two and a half, three million or more of God's people. And so God says in this verse, I am removing from you, as Chris just mentioned in his his, uh, his introduction to lead like Jesus, I am removing from you the precious gift of influence. No longer do you get to stand and bless my people because you have dishonored my name. God's rebuke gets a little bit stronger in verse 3. Because of you, I will, re I will rebuke your descendants, so your influence now, you lose influence, so do your descendants. I will smear on your faces the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. Sort of like the Queen's song, you got mud on your face, you big disgrace. <clears throat> Somebody's going to put you back in your place. God will, God will rock you. I'm not sure if they were thinking about this song or this verse, but that's, that's what's going on in Malachi chapter 3. It's the promise by God that just as every sacrifice that was given had an associated amount of waste from the animals, if you've ever been to when people are cleaning fish or whatever, there's a lot more waste to the fish than there is to what you can eat. And so all of the waste that was thrown away with these sacrifices, God says, I'm going to throw your influence away just as the animal waste is thrown away with 
the sacrifice. He said, and I'm going to throw all of that away. I'm going to take you away from these, these high levels of influence because I want to replace you with people who will use their influence to draw men and women and children to me. You've got to use your influence to help people find me. And so he tells them about a, what a faithful kind of leader looks like. You will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue. So he's trying to get back to the type of leader upon which Israel was built. Israel, if you're not familiar with the nation, it was, it was pretty much governed by or it was composed of 12 tribes. And one of the tribes, it was the, it was the coolest job in the world. It was the tribe of Levi, and they only had really one job, and that was to keep the people focused on God. They weren't farmers. They, 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 didn't have, they didn't have to worry about the cameras. They weren't tech people. All they had to do was help the people stay astonished at God. This is sort of what, if you were in the tribe of Levi, this is what God described your job as. My covenant was with him. This is anybody who was in the tribe of Levi. A covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him, and this called for reverence. In other words, if you're going to help other people adore God, you're going to have to be adoring. So this called for your revering God if you're going to help other people revere God. This called for reverence, and he revered me like the first of all the preachers out of Levi. He revered me and stood in awe of my name. Now, last week when we were in this verse, this section, I told you I love the book of Malachi because it is from this book that America's greatest theologian, the greatest theological thinker that, that God has ever given to this nation, Jonathan Edwards, I love the book of Malachi because when the church in Northampton, Massachusetts, where Jonathan Edwards ministered during the greatest revival that's ever come from 1734 to 1741. We call it the Great Awakening. When Jonathan Edwards, by God's grace, when, when Edwards was used for that, and they were going to pick one verse that summarized Edwards' life, they went to Malachi. And they put a big bronze plaque, a relief on the wall of the church on the site where Edwards did all of his courageous, uh, zealous preaching in the, the early 1700s. But what I wanted to do, the reason I came back to this today that I didn't get to last week is the reason that God used Jonathan Edwards is because of his astonishment at God, the way he revered God. Um, Edwards is known as the greatest theological mind to write on the American continent, no doubt. No, nobody's going to disagree with that, but most people don't know that Jonathan Edwards was just as curious about science and philosophy. He, was, he, he loved to read like the works of Isaac Newton and, and, and all of the scientific discoveries that were coming from the pen of Newton. And, and he did so because he said, I believe the wonders of nature are proof. I believe, this is why he was into science, I believe the wonders of nature are proof of the genius of the Creator. That's why he loved science. 
And this is evident in the oddest of all things that he would have written, an essay on spiders. He wrote this essay October 31st, 1723 to Paul Dudley, a Massachusetts member of the Royal Society of London. Now this is what the original letter looked like, even with diagrams of a spider coming from out of off a tree limb, and Edwards just stared at this spider day after day. And I'm not going to read you the whole letter that he wrote to Dudley, but the essence of it is this. He said, I find it marvelous that God has designed this creature that this fabric can come out of its tail and it can hang about halfway down or however long he wants to hang until a whiff of wind comes along and blows him to the next tree as if he's flying. So the whole thing is Edwards and his love of flying spiders. And he he marveled that not only did God equip spiders for this feat, but that there seemed to be a pleasure in the insect world as they went about their daily business. So Jonathan Edwards was raised up by God in the Great Awakening because he was a man who was like in, in Malachi, that what a priest ought to be, a leader ought to be, astonished at God, amazed at God, stands in awe of God. If somebody were to ask me right now, say, what's the number one characteristic you want to see in a leader? No doubt in my mind, he is in awe of God. That's where it begins. That's where leadership begins in your home, your business, your ministry. And Edwards was in awe of God. Now, but that's not where it stopped with Edwards and insects. Edwards, the more he stared at this spider and all of the insect world, could see that insects were at a disadvantage because they got to play, but they couldn't worship like we can. Did, did you think the worship this morning was just crazy great? Man, it was just, you just, it was great. If y'all weren't so white, you'd probably be clapping more and screaming more. I tell you, these were some great songs. Oh, it was so good. Love the worship today. It was just beautiful. And I know we all worship. I was asking people out uh, in the, the greeters out there, just said, is anybody going to give me an amen? They said, well, we're pretty loud ameners. And said, no, they said, I'm, a, I'm amening, but I'm quiet. And um, so I know we have all different ways of worship. Oh, it's so good. Well, Edwards knew that these insects couldn't worship. This is how he wrote it. <clears throat> but yet... Although we are but worms and insects, less than insects, nothing at all, yea, less than nothing, yet so has God dignified us that He has made us for this very end to think and be astonished at His glorious perfections. 
That's the advantage of us over insects and spiders. We have the ability to be astonished. The spider cannot be astonished at the little stuff that comes out of his tail. He can do it, but he can't be astonished at the stuff that's coming out of his tail. We can be astonished. He can't be astonished. He can't worship. And this is what we hope will be our business to all eternity to think on, to delight in, to speak of, and sing forth the infinite excellencies of the deity. So I just really want to ask you in your quiet time, when is the last time that you thanked the Lord that you were not a bug? Because as great as they are, and like I said, and as much as they seem to have delight in the enablement that's been given to them by their Creator, they can't worship. And, and it's why we don't, we, we don't invite roaches here. And there's, sometimes we try to smack them when we see them. But this is what we're going to do for all of eternity, to be astonished at God. Have you ever stood, have you ever been in the presence of somebody? You really, it might be, you might have done that this morning. You stood in the presence of somebody who is they're in awe of God. They're standing in awe of God. You just way they worship, and they just their their worship is it's controlled. It's got parameters to it, but there's sort of a, a zeal, sort of a wildness, sort of a they sort of have to the right or to the left. Not a lot of concentration on their part. They're just focused on enjoying God. But their amazement of God is so impassioned, it's so unshackled that it arrests your attention. I want to tell you a story about one of the most impassioned um, priests in the Bible that comes out of the tribe of Levi. Now remember, I'm telling you this story because Malachi holds up this, this priest division Levi, this is where all of the, um, the, the, the leaders should come from. So, so I'm telling you this story because the story I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you the story about the great, 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 and there may be one more great in there, I don't know, grandson of Levi, and his name is Phineas. And he's filled with the same thing that Levi is in Malachi. The awe of God. And it's amazing what it makes him do. Here's the backstory. If you read the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, <clears throat> it's the story of Israel waiting. And I'm, I don't know if anybody in this church can, can relate to waiting. But Israel waited for 38 years in the book of Numbers for God to open the doors so they could go into their new homeland, the promised land. And during their time of waiting, they often got into disobedience. Well, one time they were in the land of Moab, which is in where our mission team just came back from uh, this week. It's sort of, it's in Jordan, eastern side of the Dead Sea, mountainous region. That's where Moab was. And while they were there, they just got tired of waiting on God and got involved in all sorts of sexual immorality with Moabite women. 
God was fear and begin to worship the Moabite gods. God was furious. <clears throat> and he began, he sent a plague. Everybody began dying. And then he said, you got to kill the people who were, were led in this revolt. <clears throat> More death there. And in the middle of all of this punishment for this horrible rebellion against God, you're not going to believe what happened. I want to fast forward to yeah, verse 6. Then in, Numbers 25, 6. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman. So she was probably, and the reason it would be included, probably an idol-worshipping woman. Then an Israelite man, so that would be a, an alleged believer in God. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses. Right, this, you see how that's phrased. Right in front of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And they were weeping because everybody's dying from the plague and from the punishment of having to kill the people who were involved in this rebellion. So everybody's crying, and he brings in a godless idolater, evidently brings her into his tent, and you know the rest of the story. And nobody does anything about it except Phineas. When Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, and this goes all the way back to Levi, because Aaron can be traced all the way back to Levi. When he saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent, and he drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. And you think, what, what does God think about that? Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. And this is what God said to Moses, who had done nothing about it. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am. He was as zealous for the honor of the Lord's name as the Lord is as zealous for his own honor. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Now, this is a huge statement. He said, this day I did not end the nation of Israel because of one man's zeal. Now, I would say that's influence. <laughs> because of one man's zeal. And then, last thing I want to read. Therefore, tell him... I am making a covenant of peace with him. You're going to find, we're going to, I'm going to show you in a minute. This is exactly out of Malachi chapter 2. Therefore, tell him, I'm making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for Israelites. So his desire to bring honor to God's name so satisfied God that God determined that all sin had been paid for, and God's name was honored, exactly like we saw a minute ago in Malachi chapter 2. My covenant was with him, Levi, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered and stood in all of my name. 
So why do I tell you all that? Because I just want to tell you that declaring and displaying the greatness of God is the true leader's delight and devotion. Declaring and displaying the greatness of God is the true leader's delight and devotion. And, you know, can I, do, I, I want to stop here just a minute just because I, I don't want to wound your conscience, but I did make an off-the-cuff uh, off comment a minute ago about you and your worship. I said if you were, you're so white, you'd, and, uh, you'd, if you would worship more and certainly didn't want to offend. I just, so, so, so. Let me just pray about that just so I can make sure I didn't offend anyone's heart. I'm so regretful if I did that. Father, I thank you for the loving grace of this body and I thank you for the grand worship we've had today. I thank you for how you've all made us. And forgive me, Lord, if my tongue would ever say anything that would bring attention away from this glorious text, away from our glorious and excellent Christ, away from the beauty of spiders and, and uh, nature and the God who has given us such lovely things to watch and behold. And Father, forgive me if I would ever say something, Lord, that would, would dishonor you and would cause a heart to be wounded and not cared for. For I am the one, Lord, you have sent to care for hearts and to speak words that would care for hearts. Forgive me, Lord, for any error in my speech. In Jesus' name, amen. So declaring and displaying the greatness of God is the true leader's delight and devotion. Several years ago, Ian Bounds, you know Ian Bounds, great writer on prayer, great man of prayer, made a very interesting statement. He said, the preacher is not a professional man. I, I prove that a lot. His ministry is not a profession. It is a divine devotion. And when Ian Bounds says that the minister is not a professional, he's not talking about, um, he's not talking about Lack of preparation, my goodness, I prepare and I prepare and still can err. He's not talking about um, uh, a failure to study rigorously. Uh, he's not talking about outlines and structure. He's talking about where your focus is as a teacher, leader, in, let's just say, appearance or style versus substance related to the teaching of Scripture. So a professional minister, well, let me just give you the definition. As I read this statement this week, this is sort of how I broke it down. I'm going to use two terms the rest of the sermon. A professional minister thinks much about how culture is reacting to his message. A gospel minister thinks much about how culture needs to hear the word of the living God. So two different types of approaches to leadership as a pastor. So when, when John Piper read Ian Bound's statement 30 years ago that the pastor is not a professional man, but he's committed to the word. He's not committed to appearance. He's not overly worried about style, appearance, um, how funny he is, how, how much culture 
likes him or doesn't like him. He wrote a book. It's a great book for young pastors, but it's a great book for... And, and what I'm sharing from this point on, I'm sharing it because I want you to understand how I function as your leader. And maybe it will help you with your confidence of my 100% commitment to my belief in what this church needs to reach this community. Been unwavering for the 15 years I've been your pastor, but maybe you need to see in light of these verses in Malachi, my belief there's only one way to reach Spartanburg. Here's what Piper says about in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. Our business is to take up the blood-splattered cross daily. How do you carry a cross professionally? In other words, there is, how do you, how do you preach and look cool? How do you talk about a crucified, bloody Jesus and look cool? How do you talk about hell and look cool? So there is pressure in every generation, in every culture, to look cool, be cool, be funny, to be cute, current, hip, relatable. And the biblical leader is so caught up in the greatness of God that he's not interested in whether or not his church or himself looks professional just as long as he carries the cross and helps his people to carry the cross. All he wants, biblical leader, all he wants is to see a crucified and risen Jesus reaching down from heaven, saving people out of hell and pulling them into the city of God. And that's what causes him to stand in awe of God. In order to be a true shepherd, let me just share my heart with you. Some me, some Piper, a little bit mixed. <clears throat> In order to grieve over straying lambs, I must believe in my heart certain terrifying and wonderful things. I must feel the truth of hell, eternal punishment, the lake of fire, the fiery furnace. These images are given to us not as overstatements, but as understatements to warn us of a place of suffering that exists far beyond our understanding. It can only be compared to torment that we do understand. It's why there's a reference to fire. The suffering in that place never ends. And apart from the gospel, I would have been doomed to that very place. For I was a son of hell. The viper's blood was in my veins. I was chained to the dragon. I acted like a beast to whom I belonged. I lied because my father, the devil, was a liar. My flesh hated God's law. I lived for sinful pleasure. I was Lord over my life. I was guilty of rejecting God. But strangely and wonderfully... The message of the gospel is that God has not rejected me. But he rejected his son instead of me. 
Isaiah 53, 5. But Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. Romans 5, 1. Now, I don't want to... Let me read that one more time. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. Romans 5, 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true for anybody in this room today who would believe and repent, believe that Christ has died for your sins, that you would turn to Christ, believe He rose from the dead and has released you from the penalty of hell. And if we don't preach this, everything else is just news. But it's not good news. That is good news. So the true son of Levi, the faithful priest and the true gospel preacher, is not concerned about sounding or looking professional. I've got that down, Pat. I can't boast in it. I'm just wild and sometimes beyond the script. I know what I am concerned about that, what every true gospel preacher is concerned about. I just go home. I just go home and I look back at my notes and I look back at the verses of Malachi 1, 2 through 8 and I just say, did I say what the text said? In other words, was I faithful? That's what a gospel preacher is worried about, concerned about. Was I faithful to the text? Why does the gospel minister talk about sin? True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Why does a gospel preacher, why would I talk about sin and hell? Because of John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I know that in my own life and everybody's life that I've ever counseled, they never got relief from sin and they never had peace with God. And I'm, I'm looking at this congregation right now and there is a dear soul on my heart that is truly set free from the bondage of sin. And I've known this individual for many years and they would be the first one to leap on the stage and say, I did not have peace with God and I did not have freedom from my guilt and I don't think I was free from the condemnation of hell until I lived and loved the truth of Jesus Christ. And I never let up on them. Year after year, year after year, they came to my office. Year after year. And I told them the same words. Nothing untrue was on my lips. Because the truth could set them free. Professional ministers are committed to the sale. They love selling things, and that's all they think about is the sale. The love of professionalism kills a man's belief that he's sent by God, that he's sent by God from heaven with a message that can rescue a world from hell. The love of professionalism, being cool, hip, relevant, 
kills a man's belief that that's his calling. The world will set the agenda always for the professional minister because the world will tell the professional minister what will sell and what will not sell in this culture. But the gospel minister wants to be intentional about teaching truth just as the Bible reveals truth. There's our verse we looked at last week. took me a while to get to it, but I love it. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. I want to read that verse because look in contrast to the professional minister that we didn't get to last week. Verse 8. But you, professional ministers, but you have turned away, but you have turned from the way, and by your teaching, look, but you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi says the Lord Almighty. Do you know what I try to do? Again, I'm contrasting professional minister with gospel minister. Do you know as a gospel minister what I try to do? Every single Sunday, I say something, and then I turn to my left and show you where I got it. I wish I wouldn't be interested to wonder if if somebody counted at, at, and watched after what you know, watched the video how many times I turn and boom point because the the professional minister very seldom points to anything it's as if he speaks and it comes out of his own authority and his people think he has this thing new word to say and he leads hundreds if not thousands of people to think that he without the text without a word from God can help them know the Lord and it's rampant and the gospel minister walks up onto a stage trembling sometimes wishing almost didn't have to be there because don't want to have to say this trembling. But everything he says, his message saturated as much as he can with Bible so that his people will know what they have heard did not come out of the man, but came out of heaven. I got my first taste of professional ministry years ago. I was so excited to preach. Little Richard, naive, so excited to preach. I was, I was not a lead pastor. I was, I was so excited to preach and explain to the people on Sunday morning about all the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament, millions of them, slaughtered sheep and goat that did not take away the sins of the people. Just streams and streams of blood around Israel's altars. And then to take those same people to Hebrews chapter 10 and to show them that through the shedding of one man's blood, Jesus Christ, all the sins of the world were taken care of and there would never be need for any blood sacrifice again. 
I was so pumped. And the word that I got from the staff was, be careful. Our culture does not like too much talk about blood sacrifice in the Scripture. This is the heart of the gospel. Not cool. Not slick. In this case, not funny. It's what all our hymns are about. It's the main lines in all of our praise songs that we love. He died, he bled, wounded. Then his body began to move. It's the center of the center. It's the strand upon which all the pearls of the Bible are linked. The cross of Christ. So what did I do when they said that wasn't going to go over? Well, I preached that very message. Because I remember the message that was preached over my head when I was... 25 years old, after I graduated from seminary and was headed out to my first little church and a group of men who believed in me, and men and women who believed in me at First Baptist North Augusta, laid their hands on me and a man named Tom Billings, who later got the stew beat out of him by his church and out of ministry, but preached this sermon over my head, and I said, I have to preach on blood sacrifice because that's what I signed up for. And this is the text that sent me out to preach that day. 2 Timothy 2.1, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the Word. You're not going to find anywhere in Scripture any admonition to a gospel minister like 2 Timothy 2.1. In the presence of God, He's here listening. And He's going to judge you and me based on today. And I'm preaching everything in light of the second coming of Christ. And in light of all of that, he says, preach what's in the Word. And then he doesn't stop there. Paul, writing to Timothy, pastoring secular Ephesus, goes on. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So that's in every culture, every generation, not just Timothy, not just mine. Just don't need to, it always happens. So what do you do when people don't want to hear doctrine, don't want to hear Malachi, don't want to hear minor prophets. They want to hear me like say something interesting. Just come up with it. What do you do when people say, say something, be funny. Say something 
Say something new. Say something that's say something that will relate to you name it. What do you do? Paul says. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Let me, let me just conclude with this. Yesterday I'm reading. Try, I, I don't want to sound hateful with this. I'm just concerned. Church out in the West, they just launched new series in September this year, same time we're doing Malachi. Malachi, they just launched a series on wrestling. And they're bringing in Ric Flair, Sting, Million Dollar Man, Ted Diabasi, and The Undertaker. And the church stage, the church stage is going to be turned into a wrestling ring. And the pastor said this is why he's doing it. One of the most used metaphors in Scripture regarding the Christian life is that of a wrestler. Probably pushing that. It's there. Spiritual warfare is there. But Jake, and then he quotes Jacob wrestling an angel. It's a staple. Wrestling is a staple in our culture. See? Going from, wrestling is a staple in our culture. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool? To interview some of the most popular wrestlers in the world. And then to have them and then and then to speak out of the scripture regarding wrestling. I do not regard this pastor as a horrible monster at all. I'm not saying he's Antichrist. I just I just would tell him there's something better than that. There's something more helpful than that. It's just better. Scripture is better. And here's why I say that. We as a people, unfortunately, have six days a week to inundate ourselves. You have six days if you want to to go watch wrestling. You have six days a week to listen to all sorts of crazy, funky music. You have six days a week to find out who the new bachelor is. You have one hour. One. We have one hour here. Why would I want to take? You have six days a week to chase after that. Just one hour, let's pull away. And let's see if we can refocus. That's all I'm saying. Let's, one hour. Without that, because that's so strong. That other stuff is strong to me. The pull of it's strong on you. Just one hour. I want to let you know as we stay here for a few more months and move into the new building at Christmas. Just joke. Um, <laughs> just need to bring you back. I want to let you know the heart of this church is always going to be built on preaching. 
And the reason why is if you ever read any, not just what I just read, I'm just going to read you one, one, one more verse. 1 Timothy 4.16. This is again Paul to young Timothy pastoring at Ephesus. And our society looks nothing like Ephesus. We, we, live, we live in a little baby world of sin compared to Ephesus. Pagan, immoral, sin-celebrating idolaters. This is easy to live in the West compared to Ephesus. This is how he said, reach Ephesus. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Why? Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Wow. Yes, God is going around the world. Yes, God is gathering up His elect. Yes, God is, by His sovereign choice, bringing people into His kingdom. But guess how He always has done it and will do it? Through biblical preaching. It's the way He saves people, and it's the way He keeps them saved until the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this day for every gospel minister who through the years has gotten us to the place we are today. Thank you for every word they uttered that was true and refreshing and soul-cleansing and Christ-exalting. Thank you for every time that a worship leader sang of the cross and the resurrection. Lord, help these men and women now as they enter the stage to help us sing the gospel. Oh, God, might we sing with, might we stand now in awe of God. Help us to stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of God. Sing in awe of God. That we had been bitten by the viper. Satan's blood was in ours. His nature was ours, and you saved us and made us to become sons and daughters of the living God. Because of Christ's blood and his suffering and his obedience and his resurrection from the dead. Oh, Jesus, we know you're coming. Might it be today, but if it's a hundred years, keep us faithful to the end through the preaching of the word, the gathering of the saints. Make us to be leaders of a nation as we stand in awe of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us again?